Good morning. Hey, welcome to Grace Bible Church, guys. If you brought your Bibles, uh, go ahead and grab them and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We have uh, been in the midst of a 15-part series in the Gospel of Mark called Follow Me. And today we conclude that series in Mark chapter 16. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. If you didn't bring your Bibles, there should be several uh, pew Bibles that look like this. In the pew backs in front of you, I invite you to go ahead and grab one of those. And uh, you can turn to page 829 in that. Mark chapter 16, and uh, if you don't have access to either of those, the text should be up on the screen. And so Mark chapter 16 is where we're going to be this morning in part 15 of Follow Me. I've entitled this sermon, Training from the Tomb, Training from the Tomb, as we get four training points, four lessons that Mark wants us to learn and to apply to our lives from the resurrection story. And so Mark chapter 16, Training from the Tomb. As you're getting there, I'd ask you to do this. Let's, uh, let's pray one more time. So if you would uh, bow your heads and close your eyes, we're going to pray, and we're going to jump right into this marvelous text. Jesus, thank you again uh, that you are indeed alive. Thank you that we do not serve a God who is dead, whose bones are uh, somewhere yet to be found, or who, whose tomb is enshrined, but we serve a living God. Jesus, you arose from the dead, and we rejoice in that. Thank you that you have done that for us. Thank you that you are before the Father now at the right hand. Thank you that you are our mediator, so that we, through faith in you, can come to the holiest of holies, to God the Father by the power of the Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you intercede on our behalf. Thank you that you are coming again. And thank you that you have defeated death itself with the wonderful promise that those of us who are in Christ will be resurrected as well. You were and you are the first fruits of the resurrection, Jesus. And so we hope in that. We long for your return so that we might, as you promised, be resurrected along with you and live with you forever and ever. What a wonderful hope that death is dead and that love has won, and that Christ has conquered. So we rejoice in you. We ask for your presence this morning. Help us, Holy Spirit, help us to understand this text which you inspired, and help us to love and to serve and to sacrifice and to give ourselves to the risen Lord Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the sacrificial lamb. And we pray this in your name and all God's people said. Amen. I want to share a story with you to get things started. In the, June, uh, in the month of June, uh, the year was 1815, several, several years ago, uh, Britain's great, uh, great Britain's General Wellington, who was their commander, fought with Francis Napoleon, maybe you've heard of him, in the pivotal battle of Waterloo. Now, I don't know if you remember your history, but it was a pivotal wa- uh, battle in that, in that war. Now, after the battle, the way that they would convey if you won or if you lost was a little different than the way we do it today. The way that they would do it is the ship, the British ship, would come into the harbor of, of Great Britain to share the news. And the way that they would share the news is they would wave these kind of coded flags to the coast, and there would be a person there who would be watching to decipher the message to see who won the battle. Well, as the story goes, uh, the British ship sailed in, and, and, and the man on the coast was ready to hear the news of victory or defeat, and he deciphered the first word, and the first word from the ship was Wellington, that is the British general. And so they waited a moment, and then the second word was deciphered, and the second word was defeated. 
to read Wellington defeated. Now, in in the most inopportune moment, there was a thick fog that descended into the bay, as the story goes, uh, uh, blocking communication from the ship to the coast. And so they only got two words, Wellington defeated. And so for hours then, until the fog lifted, the news spread across England, Wellington defeated. Wellington defeated, and there was much agony and gloom as Britain thought that it had lost the battle. Well, after about two to three hours, the thick fog, it lifted and it went away, and so communication resumed, and the first word came once again, Wellington, and the second word came once again, defeated, but now this time there was a third word, a new word, actually two words, and it read this way, Wellington defeated the enemy. And the news rang all across England and they rejoiced. There was gloom and there there was rejoicing. You know, after Good Friday, that's kind of the news. That was the message that must have been in the hearts and the minds of the followers of Christ. The message that they got from the cross and from his death and from his burial was this, Christ defeated. Christ defeated. But the wonderful news is, is that on the third day, the fog lifted, did it not? And there was a new message ringing forth from the tomb, and that was this, Christ defeated the enemy. Amen? He defeated the enemy of death and sin and Satan. And so today, we're going to hear in Mark chapter 16 of how Jesus Christ rose from the dead and how he defeated the enemy. This Resurrection Sunday, I've entitled the sermon, Training from the Tomb. Now, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for some 15 weeks now, and it's been pretty, pretty fast-paced, pretty, pretty hectic, but we've seen uh, the life and the death of, of Jesus Christ. And now we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we have looked at the Gospel of Mark, we've noticed that each of the Gospels is unique. Each of the four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bring uh, unique information. Now, of course, there's a lot of overlap in the Gospels, but each of them brings uh, specific information that the other one doesn't. And they each write for a different purpose. They each write to a different audience. And we've learned that the Gospel of Mark was written sometime around 63 A.D. to Christians in the first century living in Rome, which is like the capital of the world, New York or Hong Kong or something like that, the capital of the inhabited world. These Christians lived there, and they were under the persecution of an emperor named Nero who had gone crazy and were persecuting them left and right. And so Mark writes to a persecuted church, and he wants them to see and to learn things throughout the story from the life of Christ. And it doesn't change in the story of his resurrection. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning that there are at least four training points, four things that Mark wants his original hearers in you and I today, those of us who are Christians, to hear from the resurrection story. And so we have training from the tomb, from the gospel of Mark. And so there'll be four points. And the first one is found in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 16. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Point number one. The first, tr- the first training point that Mark wants us to see is this. Be devoted to Christ. To be devoted to Christ no matter what. No matter what. And we see that in verses one through three. Through three. Now Mark begins his story by highlighting the devotion of three women. 
We know that there were more from other Gospels, but Mark highlights three women, and he highlights their devotion, how extremely devoted they were to Christ, even at his death, even after his death, especially in contrast to the male disciples who were nowhere to be seen. And so the first point, be devoted to Christ no matter what, as these three women were. So let's walk through the text together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spice, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? So in verses 1 through 3, Mark is highlighting the great devotion of these women. Now, what do we know about these women? I mean, what does Mark tell us about these three women specifically? Well, if you look a little bit into chapter 15, you'll see a couple things. First of all, you'll find out that these three women were with Christ, followed Christ, were devoted to Christ all the way to the cross, all the way to the bloody cross. They were with him. And the biblical text, by way of contrast, shows us and tells us that all of the disciples, quote, fled. They fled. They left. Just think about it. Here were the men who had followed him for some three plus years every day with him in the nitty gritty. They had seen all of his teachings and many of these women had too, but they were the called out ones. They were the 12. They were the apostles. They had claimed that they would be faithful to Christ until the end, and yet they all fled the scene when he was arrested. And as he went through the torture and the trials and ultimately the shame and the humiliation of the cross, who was there? Who was with him? Mark tells us that these three women were with him. They didn't care to be, if they were associated with a convicted criminal in the eyes of Rome. They did not care. They were with him. Mark also shows that two of them went with Jesus all the way to the tomb. That is, they went not just to the funeral, but to the graveside service, so to speak. They were devoted to him. They were with him at the cross when the men were no longer there, and they cared enough because they wanted to take care of their master's deceased and bloody and beaten body that they followed Christ all the way to his burial, all the way to the tomb, they were with him. And so we get a picture even before this verse in chapter 16 of women who were devoted to Christ regardless. And then we see continued devotion. What what does the text tell us that they were doing? It says when the Sabbath was over, that's Saturday, right? You can't do any work on on the Sabbath. They couldn't work with Jesus' body on Saturday. But we get the impression that the that they were, they were just itching to. They were just itching to. They wanted to serve him. They wanted to love him. They wanted to anoint his body with spices so that it wouldn't form a stench so quickly, but they couldn't on Saturday. And so the text says that when the Sabbath was over, which is sunset uh, on, sun, on Saturday, they went out and they bought spices. So they go. They're using the last uh, hour or so of daylight to go to gather spices because the next day, what are they gonna do? They're going to be devoted to him. They're going to serve him. Notice what the text says. Very early. Any of you early risers? I know some of you are early risers. 
I'm not an early riser. It's hard for me to get up in the morning. I don't know if they were or not, but the text says that very early in the morning, the first day of the week, that Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they were going to uh, anoint his body. This is an act of devotion. Jesus had been dead for two days. Certainly the stench would have been increasingly bad, and yet they didn't care. They just didn't care. They wanted to go and, and offer a final symbolic act of love, much like going to somebody's graveside and leading, leaving flowers. It's a symbolic act of your love and your devotion. That's what they were doing. They were a picture of being devoted to Christ no matter what. In fact, one commentator by the name of Rhodes hits it on the head. He says this, these actions are done by people, the the women, who courageously sacrifice or risk something, money or arrest or reputation to carry them out. They were an example of extreme devotion to Christ regardless of what it cost them. And then notice the irony. They ask each other in verse 3, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? You know, some commentators say, well, why didn't they think about that? Why didn't they, why didn't they gather some men as they were going? Listen, they're grieving. They've lost a friend. They've lost a master. They were so focused on wanting to, to do this that they leave and they just didn't think about it. And so Mark records the scene of these three women and they're, they're heading on their way to the tomb and most likely their heads are down and they're carrying their spices and they're going to the place where Jesus died and, and one of them thinks, there's a huge stone there. <laughs> we can't do it ourselves. Who's gonna roll it away? And the implication that I think Mark wants to, to, us to see is that, well, if the guys would have been willing to go, they could have done it. But they weren't there. And there's thick irony there. And so the first lesson that Mark wants his original hearers in the first century, and you and I, is to be devoted to Christ, regardless of what it costed them. Now this spoke most certainly to those in the first century. The first century Christians, this resonated with them, I believe, because Mark is challenging them, listen guys, you're undergoing extreme persecution, you're at risk, your families are at risk, are you gonna be devoted to Jesus? in the midst of these turbulent times? Are you gonna be devoted to Jesus if somebody comes knocking at your door because you're a Christian? And he says, be devoted to Christ regardless of the cost, regardless of the risk, just like these women. And he says that to you, and he says that to me this morning. And so I wanna ask you if we will learn this lesson. Will we be devoted to Christ no matter what? Another way to think of it is, what could happen in your life? What would it be if this were to happen that I would start to waver in my commitment to Jesus Christ? What would that be? That's a difficult question for all of us to ask, but Mark asks it of us. Even if your spouse cheats on you and leaves you, will you be devoted to Christ? Even if your family falls apart or a family member passes on unexpectedly, will you still be devoted to Christ? Even if the news from the doctor is just not exactly what you wanted to hear, even if you get fired or laid off, will you still be devoted to the risen Christ? The first lesson that we see from the Gospel of Mark is this. Be devoted to Christ no matter what. We then see a second lesson that Mark wants us to see, and it's in verses four through six. And the second point is this. Not only should we be devoted but we need to be convinced. We need to be convinced 
that Jesus is alive. That's what I think Mark wants us to learn from verses four through six. And Mark gives us uh, at least a couple reasons to be convinced to really believe that Jesus Christ arose from the dead. Let's take a look as we continue in uh, Mark chapter 16 at verses four, five, and six. The story continues. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. That's an understatement, don't you think? Don't be alarmed, he said. I love that. Isn't that funny? What? (laughs) Don't be alarmed. He says, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so in verses 4 through 6, I think Mark wanted his original hearers and wants us to be convinced of the fact that Jesus Christ is not dead and that Jesus Christ is alive. Let's take a look at the first reason, and it's found in verse 4. It's the fact that the stone was rolled away. Evidence number 1 The reason we should be, the first reason Mark gives us that we should be convinced that Jesus Christ is alive today is in verse 4, and it's the fact that the stone was was rolled away. Now, I don't know about you, most of us have heard this story from one of the Gospels before, and it's just so easy for us just to kind of read through it and just to be like, okay, yeah, I know what's coming. Okay, they get there. Oh, stone, okay, let's go in. Oh, there's an angel. Okay, yeah, of course, Jesus is alive. We just kind of read it, ho-hum, you know, but... Just kind of try your best to put yourself in these ladies' shoes. They're walking to the tomb. They're, they're, they're upset most likely because they don't know how they're going to get this huge stone to be rolled away. And so there's, they're concerned. How are we going to anoint his body? And so they're probably talking about it. And then the text says that they looked up and they arrived at the place where the stone was, where Jesus was buried, and this huge stone that used to cover the entrance to the tomb... It's not, it's rolled away. It's not covering the tomb. That was shocking to them. They must, the first thing certainly that they must have thought was, who took him? Who took him? Why? Where did they take him? Why? I mean, that must have been what went through their mind as they looked and they saw the stone, which was very large, Mark tells us, rolled away. You know, it's kind of, I I can equate it to to maybe something like this. It's like going to a graveyard, and you go to a graveyard, and you notice that uh, on on one plot, there is a, it's been, it's been dug up, and you look, and the casket is no longer in the ground. It's dug up, and on top of that, the casket is open. Now, if you go to a graveside, and you see that, you're not just going to be like, okay, (laughs) right? You're like, it's open, <laughs> you know? There, there's supposed to be a dead person in there, and it's open. Certainly, that that's must, must have been how they felt, but this is convincing proof that Jesus was alive for a couple reasons. First of all, some people suggest that the disciples went and they rolled the stone away, and that's, uh, they took Jesus' body and just made it up. Yeah, okay, he's alive, he's resurrected, but we really have his body somewhere in our house or something, Right? That is so incredibly ridiculous. How, how could the other Gospels tell us that there were Roman guards who were trained, whose very lives were at stake guarding the tomb? They were trained, their life was at stake. The Gospels tell us that the, the tomb was sealed. Now how would a bunch of fishermen 
who weren't all that courageous at that moment go overtake the Roman soldiers, move the, the sealed stone away, and, and, and bring the body out. It's just not going to happen. The other explanation that some people want to suggest is that, well, Jesus really didn't die. Like, he was on the cross, and he just faked it. Like, he's like, oh, just kidding, you know? Uh, It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous for all sorts of reasons. But let's just say that happened. How is one man bloodied and beaten to a pulp, how is he going to move this stone by himself? There's just no way. And so the first reason that we should be convinced that Jesus really is alive as the, as the stone is rolled away. And there's another reason, and it's the empty tomb. Let's read together again, verses five and six. It's the empty tomb. And so in verse four, they come and they see the stone has been rolled away, right? And then what we find out is they enter the tomb. I mean, can you imagine that? Verse five, they entered the tomb. So you go and you see the casket up. It's dug up and it's open, are you going to go take a peek inside? (laughs) They did. They went and they looked inside. They're like, okay, here we go, right? And so they go in, and and the tomb was most likely, uh, the door was very small, so you kind of have to stoop in. And and if it's, if Jesus' tomb was like most of them of this stature, you would, you would enter in this little doorway, and there was, for lack of a better word, like an atrium area, okay? So there's, there's this kind of a little open area, and then you go in a little further, and then there are slabs where the body would be laid. Most likely, they, they entered in, right? They look at the atrium, and there's nothing there. Are you going to go look at the body? Yeah, they're going to. And so they go, and they look at the slab, which is a little bit more, and instead of seeing a, a, a wrapped body, what do they see? A man <laughs> who's dressed in white. A young man who's dressed in white. Now just think about this. Just think about this. They found life in the place where there's supposed to be death, right? This is like... This is like creepy. This is like eerie, right? It's like going and you open, you, you go and you look and, and the, the casket is empty, but then somebody right behind the casket pops up. It's like, hmm, <laughs> that should give you the willies. It certainly gave them the willies, right? There's a man there. You don't expect that. He's a young man. He's dressed in white. The other gospels tell us that it's an angel and the angel has a message for them. And the message is this. Notice what he says in verse 5, verse 6. Don't be alarmed, (laughs) right? (laughs) You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified. He knows why they're there. Did you pick that up? he, He knows why they're there. Now, they don't know why he's there as an angel, but he knows why they're there. They're looking for Jesus. He's like, you're looking for Jesus, right? I know this because God told me I'm an angel. You're looking for Jesus, the one who was crucified, right? The one who died, and he's not here. He gives them the divine revelation that affirms the empty tomb. Now, an empty tomb doesn't mean anything, but an empty tomb with an angel saying he's alive means something much more, right? And so he he tells them, He's alive. Don't be alarmed. He's not here. And he even invites, I like this, he even invites them to look where he was, was laid. He's like, come on, look. There it is. There, there are the clothes. Look at it, you know. And they physically, tangibly saw this. And so the second reason why we should be convinced that Jesus is alive is the rolled away stone. And secondly, the fact that there's an empty tomb. I don't know if you've thought about this, but if the Jewish leaders or even the Roman leaders, if they wanted to disprove this, 
All they had to do was produce a body. I mean, that's, it's, it's just that simple. Here he is. He's dead. End of story. Let's go home. No reason for us to be here, right? That's all they had to do was produce a body. But the fact that the body was not there, the tomb was empty, and that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is proof that we should be convinced that he is alive. And so I want to ask you a question. As Mark was asking his original hearers, are you convinced that Jesus really, actually, factually is alive? Do you, are you convinced of that? See, Mark's original hearers, this was very significant because I don't know about you, but I'm not going to put my neck out there for a person that I think might be dead. I'm not going to let them take my family away and take me to be burned or mocked or murdered at the hands of a crazy Roman emperor. I'm not going to take that kind of a risk if I'm not sure that the person I'm dying for is alive and he's God, right? I'm not going to do that. And the same is true for us. Are you convinced that he really is alive? I think many of us, and I would suggest that maybe many of you sitting here, you would say, yes, I believe that. And intellectually, that's true. You really believe that he's alive. But here's the deal. You believe that in your mind, but it's not gotten to the place of your will. It's not gotten to the place where you put the pieces together that said, Jesus really is alive, so that must mean that what he says is true. And what he says is that I'm the way and the truth to life and that no one can come to the Father except by me, and that is what you have to do. And so you believe in your head that he's alive, but your life doesn't show it. You believe in your head that he's alive, but you've not given your life to him. You've not placed your faith in him personally. You've not believed in him and been born again. And so you think it in your mind, but you're really not convinced. We're going to give you an opportunity to personally place your faith in Jesus Christ in just a moment. So Mark has given us a couple points. He said, be devoted to Christ. He said, be convinced that Jesus is alive. And then the third point is in verse seven. And he says, be willing to receive grace. Be willing to receive grace. The angel not only gives them the the message that Jesus is alive, but he gives them a divine mission. He gives the women a divine mission, mission to go and to tell the other disciples. So let's read that in verse seven. But go, said the angel, tell his disciples, and notice this, and Peter. But go, tell his disciples, and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This was a message of forgiveness. This was a message of reconciliation. This was a message of grace. This was a message to a group of disciples who were not following Jesus at that point. This was a message to a group of men who fled him in the moment that he needed them. They shamed him. Peter denied him three times, and now they're hiding for their lives because they don't want what happened to Jesus to happen to them. And it's to that group of men that Jesus says, go tell them that I'm alive and that I'm going to meet them in Galilee. What he's saying is, you can still be my disciples. You can still follow me, even though you've messed up. In fact, the reference to Galilee is significant because when you read the Gospels, you find out that Jesus began his ministry, guess where? In Galilee. And many of them were called from the region of Galilee. And so what he's telling them is, listen, 
we're going to start this thing again, okay? You failed me. You denied me. You ran from me. But we're going to go back to the beginning. I'm going to offer you forgiveness and a message of grace, and you need to be able to receive this grace. I want to show a short clip from a couple guys named the Skit Guys, and they do a a great bit on this verse. And so uh, let's learn a little bit about the nature of this message of grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, his crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. Jesus, is that you? You're alive. I can't believe you're alive. Okay, I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net. And I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord. And you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. This is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on. Peter, yeah. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good, then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? I love you, yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster cluck, and I had no idea what that meant, but I do not. I'm better for it, all right? Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Jesus, mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. That is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, Yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And she said that there was an angel there. And the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. And so me and John, we hightailed it down there. And if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there, and I'm looking in that tomb, and it is. It is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait, yeah. the angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is said okay. what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. Why did you say my name? Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. 
That's grace, Peter. And so the angel gives them, the disciples, and Peter specifically, a message of grace. So what about you? Are you willing to receive a message of grace this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and and you're a believer. You've been born again. You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you know that. And yet, you're not living like it. You've turned away from him. You're living in sin. You are not going to church. You're not reading your scriptures. You are running from Christ. In a sense, you've denied him, like Peter. You're ashamed. Ashamed to go back to church. Ashamed of what you've done. Ashamed even to talk to him. And to you, believer, like he says to the believer so long ago, he says, meet me in Galilee. He says, meet me in Galilee. Be willing to be reconciled to me. So will you meet him there, Christian? Some of you here are not Christians. You may say so you are in name, but you've never personally accepted Jesus Christ as as your Savior. You've never been born again. You've never made that transaction with God to where you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the holiness of Jesus Christ, and he he receives your sin. You've never been born again. And the message to you is the same, because when you come to Christ, when you believe and you're convinced that he's really alive, you are convinced that he's really alive, and you come to him, you don't come to him, you don't come to him saying, I deserve it, this is what I've done, here's my resume, right? That's not how you come to God. You come to God, and you come to Jesus Christ, and you say, it's unforgivable, would you forgive me? I need your grace. It's all of grace. We're gonna give you a chance to receive God's grace here in a minute. So we finally come to our fourth point. As the Gospel of Mark ends in chapter 8, at least the original text, ends in verse 8, Mark has a concluding point, and it's a shocking ending. It's unexpected. This is not what you expect for the Gospel to end like, but it ends this way in verse 8. He gives them a divine mandate to go and to share the fact that he is risen, and the women, well, let's see what they do in verse 8. Trembling, And bewildered, the women went out, that is from the tomb, and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone. Why? Because they were afraid. The end. That's how the gospel of Mark ends, with the women being afraid, and they don't want to share what they know about Jesus Christ. Now, we know from the other gospels, eventually they do, but Mark ends this way intentionally, This is an odd ending. Why does he end that way? Well, if you've been with us or if you are familiar with the Gospel of Mark, there's irony in this because in the Gospel of Mark, numerous times when people are healed by Jesus, when they place their faith in Jesus, he says, don't go and tell anyone about it. Just just keep it on the down though, right? Don't share. And what do they do? Thank you, Malachi. Somebody's been listening to my sermons. (laughs) Good job. They share. They're like, Okay, Jesus, no, we're going to tell anyways, right? That's awesome. Yeah, we're going to tell anyways. They don't care. In fact, when the disciples, when Jesus says, hey, that's who everybody else says I am, who do you say that I am? That I am? And they're like, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And even Jesus says, don't tell anyone yet. It's not time. It's not time for me to publicly profess my Messiahship. And then when Jesus is before Pilate, He says, are you the king? And he says, yes. And when he's before the Jewish leaders, they say, are you the Christ? And he says, yes. 
It's like a crescendo. Finally, he publicly declares himself to be the Messiah and the Son of God. And then he rises from the dead, right? He rises from the dead, and his followers, these women, they get the news, and the angel specifically says, go and tell, go and tell. Now's the time, right? And so if you're familiar with Mark, you totally expect what? It's supposed to read, and the women left the tomb immediately and went and told the disciples and Peter. But that's not what it reads, does it? That's not what it says. It says, they were afraid. They were afraid. So they kept shut. They kept their mouth shut. They kept silence. Total reversal of anything we expected. And it's for this reason Mark is writing to a persecuted church. They were under much stress and much duress. And if you know that by telling your neighbor or your coworker that you believe in Jesus Christ might get you killed, then you might be afraid too. And you might not say anything about the resurrected Christ out of fear. And Mark ends his gospel this way, I believe, specifically by saying these women were afraid and they weren't going to tell anyone. Will you? And he says that not just to Roman Christians 1,900 years ago, He says that to us here today in Cisna Park. Will you be ready to tell others? Again, Rhodes is helpful, the commentator. At this point, fear forces the reader, that's you and I, to face once again the fear in his or her own own situation. We need to face our fear. No matter how much the reader knows or sees, no matter how much the reader knows or sees, he or she must still make the hard choice in the end whether to be silent like the women or to proclaim the good news. And so what about you, Christian? What about me? You afraid? You scared? You afraid to bring up Jesus Christ to your family, to your dad, your mom, your students that go to school with you? Will you say nothing to anyone because you're afraid? or will you not? We're going to wrap up our time this morning by doing this. I'm going to give us a brief time to to respond. Uh, We've heard uh, from the scripture, we've heard four lessons. And so I want to give you just a moment, and we're just going to have a a moment of silence, and I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to talk to God. I'm going to ask you to talk to Jesus and respond to what you've heard this morning. Maybe this morning you're a Christian and you're struggling in your devotion to God. You know that you've run from him, but you want to commit yourselves to be devoted to him. Maybe you're going through a personal, really hard time and your devotion is waning and you want to devote yourself to him afresh. Maybe you're here this morning and You're not a believer. You believe that Christ really did rise, but you haven't done anything with that. It's not personal. You haven't made a decision to trust in Jesus Christ. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer of of faith to do that in just a moment. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but, but you've run from God and you need to be willing to receive grace. Maybe the message for you this morning is Jesus says to you, meet me in Galilee. Meet me in Galilee. There can be restoration. There can be a renewed relationship between me and you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer and you struggle like I do with sharing Christ. You struggle like I do oftentimes of opening my mouth in times that I need to open my mouth and not be afraid to share the gospel when we leave this place and Sunday Easter is over and all the turkey or ham or whatever it is that you're eating is, is all gone. You're afraid to share the gospel. Maybe you want to commit to doing that. Wherever you are, I'm going to ask that you close your eyes and that you bow your head and that you just spend a moment 
responding to the word of God this morning. And then I'll close us in a prayer and we'll be done. So go ahead.